all development takes failure. You don't go from Kitty Hawk to a, a 777 or a whatever it is, A380, without making a lot of mistakes along the way and losing a few aeroplanes. It's no different in any other field of endeavor, and energy is one such. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, a very special treat for me and for my listeners, I'll be talking to veteran energy journalist Llewellyn King, who is host of the PBS's White House Chronicle. So welcome to the to Energy Talks, Llewellyn. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Well, this is a, I say this is a special treat because you and I got acquainted around the, the work that you do with the U.S. Energy Association. You've very graciously invited me to sit on a couple of panels, and I very much appreciate that. And, and so I've had a peek into a career that I wouldn't normally uh, perhaps have run across, uh, being a Canadian, don't watch a lot, a lot of American television. But you have a storied journalism career. You started in the 1950s, I believe. You grew up in, in uh, South Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And I'm fascinated to get your take on how you practice journalism in those days and how things have changed. Not substantially differently. Oh, I should have said not substantially differently. Um, journalism remains the same. The commodity, the subject changes but the practice doesn't vary that much. It was all summed up to me once in Washington by Dan Revive of CBS News, uh, when he was with CBS News, and he was quite a well-known American broadcaster. He said, I don't know what all this examination is about. My job is very simple. I try to find out what's going on and tell people. And journalism is that. It's about trying to find out what's going on and telling people. And it never really gets off that central purpose. It goes through fashions, through changes, uh, through different views of itself. Journalism, the practice of it, is essentially, in my view, a conservative business. We don't change quickly, particularly in newspapers, a little faster in television. But even so, very quickly, we set up our own rigidities. Now, that's not the coverage. It's the way it's done and the way it is presented. Journalists, as a generalization, may be quite liberal, but in our own craft, we're remarkably conservative. Well, let's talk about that craft because you uh, got your start at the age of 16 as a stringer for, for Time and another magazine. Uh, tell, us, tell us about what it intrigued you, got you into the business. Well, I, you know, I was there living in Southern Rhodesia where I was born. Uh, our parents who were also born in Africa. And uh, I thought I would like to be prime minister of the United Kingdom. The reason for that is that we were more British than the Brits out in the colonies. Uh, we were more loyal and we had a greater sense of the uh, British ethos probably than people living in London at the same period did. We were probably somewhere in our thinking between this First World War and the Second World War, people in London obviously were in another place and heading uh, to yet an, a third place. Uh, but the, the problems there were, A, I was not in England and had never been there, which would be an impediment. And I realized pretty early on, I wasn't smart enough probably to do that job. Uh, but 
So I decided I would like to have a career where if I were not to be one of the great movers and shakers of history, I would like to know the great movers and shakers of history. Hence, when I dropped out of high school, I sought a job in journalism, started very quickly for a farming magazine, got fired very quickly, and then lucked out big time. And in all careers, in all lives, you should never underestimate the role of luck, being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right person. And it always basically takes one person in love, in business, in your career. One person is hugely important. In my case, it was a man called Eric Robbins, who represented time, life, the whole uh, Henry Luce stable, and a lot of London newspapers. It was a time of stringers where uh, correspondents owned the right to file for a bunch of newspapers and received a small uh, <clears throat> retainer from each of them, and then was paid lineage on top of the uh, um, of the retainer. And he was very industrious, very well connected, and very good at what he did. So I lucked out, and next thing I was working the time for the Daily Express, and I thought my career would have an endless trajectory like that. And who knows what fame and fortune awaited me? Well, of course, it doesn't go that way. And in due course, I moved on. I ran a new weekly newspaper. And uh, then I went to London, where I was fortunate to get a job on a newspaper in Fleet Street, the legendary center of British publishing, which is a short street. Um, actually, most of the, all the newspapers have moved now, but at one time they were all concentrated very close together. And uh, it was a wild and exciting time. It was the probably the apex of British newspapering. Uh, money was being made by the proprietors and fun was being had by the employees, and particularly the reporters. We had big expense accounts, big egos, big thirsts, and we lived it up. Now, when were you on uh, Fleet Street? Was this uh, during the 60s? This was from 1960 to 1963. Uh, in that time, which is really regarded as one of the golden periods of British journalism. There was a lot of creativity going into newspapers. Uh, as I said, they were making money so that people were paid enough that they could afford it. And creative things were happening in Britain. It was the beginning of the satire revolution. Uh, people like David Frost were coming down to London from Cambridge and um, performing. And uh, there was a great sense of change. It was the beginning of the 1960s. Uh, in 1960, obviously, it was, uh, but it was both psychologically as well as uh, in terms of the calendar. And it just got more so. Mary Quant had invented the miniskirt, which wasn't much of an invention, but it took a certain amount of moral courage to lift skirts up so far above the knee. Um, and at every turn, there was something new happening over at the Royal Court Theatre, a whole set of new playwrights, the angry young men they were called, were appearing, people like John Osborne, his work was being produced. Um, it was a very dynamic time, and I was lucky enough to be there. Across town, uh, <coughs> at, no, at the, uh, or rather across the river at the, um, at the studios, the big, uh, uh, cinema studios that were making Cleopatra. 
which became an important part of my life because I was um, directed for quite a long time to follow Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton around when they were making Cleopatra and making um, uh, great romantic sounds together. Sure. Uh, now, you, um, when did you move to, this, to uh, the United States and uh, uh, what did you do when you got there? Well, I came over in 63 and again, I was quite fortunate. I got on the Herald Tribune in New York, which was a very creative, inventive newspaper. Unfortunately, it was not financially sound, and, uh, but it had enormous number of talented people working on it. And I went there just for the summer of 63, but it was a wonderful introduction to American journalism. Um, and uh, that's how I began in the States. Now, uh, one of the things that caught my eye in your biography is that you uh, started the first women's liberation magazine, Women Now. Uh, tell us that story, please. Well, I, I had known a lot of women in journalism and in business, and I was aware of glass ceilings. I don't think they were excluded at all, but there were glass ceilings. And, uh, I had my first wife, who's a very talented English journalist, she certainly had run across up against the glass ceiling. And it didn't apply where talent was involved. It didn't apply in writing and reporting. It didn't apply in, applied though in foreign travel and in climbing up to the exit to be assistant editor, editor, etc. of the newspaper. There were ceilings. And I was interested in that. And so we started uh, White House, uh, we started uh, <coughs> Women Now, uh, all it did was liberate my money. It didn't liberate any women. I, I can't say it was a great change in the American political scene or in the social scene either. Well, uh, I can appreciate that, Llewellyn. We, my wife and I started, uh, well, we started our online journalism business, our first one in uh, 2008, which uh, we were one of the pioneers in, in our part of Canada. And we, part of that means uh, pioneering new revenue models, which as I can tell you over the last 14 years is much more difficult than it looks. And so I've been liberated of a few dollars myself in this process and I appreciate what that means. Well, let's talk about uh, moving, when you moved to Washington DC, you went to become an assistant editor at the Washington Post and a leader of the, yeah, the leader of the Baltimore Washington Newspaper Guild. Tell us that story. Well, I, I, when I got there, I, when I came down the pike to Washington, because newspapers were folding in New York at a tremendous pace. Uh, I mean, the Hearst paper folded, the Herald Tribune folded. I think altogether something like six daily newspapers and, uh, uh, just collapsed in New York. And I came down the pike and I ended up first at the Washington Daily News, which was, belonged to the Scripps Hard Company, where I worked for three years. And then I got involved uh, in uh, an argument about uh, policy in the paper. So I moved over to the Washington Post where I was uh, titled an assistant editor. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a newspaper. It was before Watergate. Um, and I actually had left about the time of Watergate and but was still working on a regular basis. Um, it was a different kind of newspaper. It had a very dynamic editor. Ben Bradley, um, it was very sought after. It saw itself as being in great competition with the New York Times, which was an illusion. 
who probably had 300 people who read both papers. There were no internet distribution in those days. Uh, but it was, again, there was a newspaper that was prospering, a newspaper that had a sense of itself, and a newspaper that had a lot of uh, editorial courage uh, coming through Bradley and uh, especially its proprietor, Catherine Graham. Right. Now, uh, in 1973, you founded the Energy Daily, uh, which I take it was more like a, a newsletter. Uh, and it was just before the first energy shock in that year. So tell us about the, the founding of your newsletter, why you did it, and uh, how the energy crisis, how you covered it, and what, you, uh, you, know, what it, you thought about its origins and so on. A little setup. When I was working in the Washington Post, I wanted to go back to reporting. And although I had an excellent relationship with Ben Bradley, the legendary editor, uh, he wouldn't give me a reporting job. So I got one covering oddly, uh, nuclear power for McGraw Hill. But rather than actually totally severing my relationship with the Washington Post, I went on working there uh, just as frequently and just as many hours, but as a contractor. So I actually did two jobs. But when I left, Bradley said to me, aghast, when I told him I was moving on, he said, you would leave the Washington Post for nuts and bolts journalism. And basically, I said, well, then, if you make me an offer, I can't refuse. He made no offer, and I moved on, which was fortuitous for me, because uh, uh, when I started the, then I, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post, because I had pretty good access to its pages at that time, about Jim Schlesinger, when he had moved over from the Atomic Energy Commission, where he was chairman, to become head of the CIA, and nobody was writing about it, because they knew nothing. So I wrote 1,200 words or so, all about Jim Schlesinger, and it was published in the Washington Post. But my, my immediate employer at McGraw Hill didn't think I should have done that. I don't know why it didn't make any sense. In my view, it still doesn't. And uh, so I left, and uh, I was encouraged to leave. I was fired. And uh, so I, I, I decided, well, I didn't want to go out and take my little bag of clippings around and try and get another job. I'd been on so many good newspapers, I probably wouldn't replicate that. So uh, I started a newsletter. It was called Weekly Energy Report. And uh, I was very fortunate because it went very fast. This was in, I think, February of 73. Now, in the summer of 73, there was a shortage of oil. It wasn't the big crisis, but there was shortage. There were, and there, there was some sense that the system was strained. Um, so things went quite well. There also was a time when nuclear power was growing very, very fast, uh, but so was the opposition to it. So it was a very good place to be. And then came the energy crisis of 73 in the winter with the Arab oil embargo and the weekly energy report became the Energy Daily. And we became really extraordinarily influential in that time because there weren't any similar publications. And we, all, we were all young, we were all enthusiastic. We had a sense that we were all people on horses, changing the world, saving it. It was a heady time. So how did you distribute the newsletter by mail, I, I assume? And what- First class mail. First class mail. And it worked remarkably well. It was obviously primarily in the US, although we had a pretty good international circulation. 
but U.S. and Canada was the principal places where it was read. In Washington and New York, it was hand-delivered, but everywhere else it was by mail. But at that time, first-class mail in the U.S. at least was very, very efficient. If you put it in the mail the night before, I lived out in Virginia, and it went in the mail the night before um, in Washington, and you receive it the next morning as often as not. Um, across the country, it was one day delay. So it was really a very efficient system. It was expensive, but we paid the first class postage, which was quite a considerable amount of money and one of our big costs, the big, other big cost of course is salaries. And uh, I was able to recruit some very talented people, maybe the most talented people, who, whoever works on the Energy Daily, in my view, were those people, the first tranche. What were you providing in terms of journalism that uh, a reader couldn't find in the New York Times or the Washington Post? Well, first of all, we concentrated. Second, we had a certain flair. Uh, we didn't, I didn't believe that because we were covering a serious subject, we had to be you know, totally uh, depressed about it. So we had a lot of flair, we had a lot of fun. Uh, somewhat, I, I like to think that I brought some of my British experience to American uh, trade journalism. Uh, the way The Economist, in many ways, has a lot of flair and is sometimes funny. We did that. It was different. There was nothing quite like it had been seen before. And it became very successful, very fast. I started other newsletters. The only one that became really as notable was one called Defense Week, which is now incorporated into a Defense Daily, called Defense Daily. But that was very successful too. But other things, so-so. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a time when suddenly newsletters were mushrooming and there were many of them. When I started, there were very few, but within three years, there were quite a lot. Now, what kind of are there similarities between the current energy crisis and the energy crises of 1970, of the 1970s? Yes, there's a shortage of energy. Um, that's a simplistic answer. Yes, there are. There happened all, first of all, public anger, the price of the pump. Uh, I don't know what it is in Canada, but in the US it's heading towards around $6 a, an American gallon. Uh, it is um, in my neighborhood on this side of in Rhode Island now, which is a low-cost gas state, but uh, gasoline is, yesterday was 420, 435, somewhere around there, depending on which station. Um, so, yeah, you, you're going to have political fallout. You're going to have finger-pointing. All of those things we had in 73. This one, though, lacks something that that had, which was a sense of almost of national despair. Uh, America had always been able to be self-sufficient. With the energy crisis, it was realized that in its most essential import was in fact an import and you couldn't fix that overnight. Um, so it was a very despairing time. I headed up a study for Richard Nixon at the time, <coughs> uh, done through the Atomic Energy Commission and uh, we couldn't find anything optimistic. Our plan was to electrify, use coal and nuclear. Uh, natural gas at that time was regarded as a depleted resource. It was subject to severe 
regulation as well as uh, other political bondage. And it wasn't until the Reagan administration that um, it was deregulated, it began to flow, and new technologies, better drilling, 3D seismic, and then the great revolution, of course, was horizontal drilling. So um, now the ne your next adventure uh, is the PBS White House Chronicle, which you started 20 years ago. Uh, tell us about the creation of that and how that plays into your energy journalism. Well, I had been doing, along with my wife, Linda Gasparella, uh, a program on, on, on cable on the stock market. Uh, it was two journalists talking about stocks, and it was really quite fun. It was quite successful uh, in that we got a lot of things right. And we approached it as journalists talking about stocks, not as stock advisors talking about stocks, not as money managers, but simply talking about the companies we observed, covered, and had reported on. And uh, we enjoyed doing it. And so that one day a man said to me, you know, in the, in the National Press Club in Washington, he said, would you like a, a radio network? And I said, oh, yes, I like a radio network, thanks. Uh, where do I get it? And he said, from me. And we started a radio program, which uh, I had a small newsletter called White House Weekly at the time, one of the less dramatic uh, of my publishing uh, adventures. And uh, uh, so we, we started White House Chronicle as a radio show, uh, but we couldn't get station coverage. Um, we, we, were not on, uh, we were not on any national network. And so we ended up with some very small AM stations. And uh, our sponsor, the Stevens Institute of Technology at that time in Hoboken, New Jersey, a major um, uh, engineering school, um, uh, said, well, why can't you get it on television? So we tried and we succeeded. We went to a local station uh, run by Howard University in Washington, did a pilot, they liked it, and we were in television. And we've been there now for, I think it's 25 years. Um, my wife and I do that together with other people. But that has changed with time. As there's been more political coverage, we've tended to look more at technology, at energy, and basically what you might say, how we live now, things that change our lives from 3D printing to uh, possibly uh, uh, new kinds of nuclear reactors. Well, Llewellyn, this has been fascinating. And let's wrap up our conversation with your take on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the implications for global energy. Well, Russia is uh, it's a sort of brutally uh, romantic idea, make Russia great again, take it back to the glory of the czars or to the enormous uh, uh, control of its neighbors that it enjoyed under the Soviet system. The, the czars started the empire, particularly in the in Central Asia, etc., but in parts of Europe. And then, of course, under communism, it became a pretty solid hegemony in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, that all ended with the end of communism. Uh, and uh, we thought Russia would behave like everybody else and had forgotten about its desire to be an, uh, an imperial power. But clearly we got it wrong. 
And along came Putin, an old KGB man who remembered the, the glory days, and his plan simply has been to make Russia great again, or great as he saw it. Um, I think mean, it's hugely misplaced, and the price is very high indeed. The highest price will be paid by Russia, but the terrible price is being paid right now by the Ukrainians. We will all pay a price for a readjustment, uh, a resetting of the world energy picture. Uh, no longer will we rely on Russia. It will not be regarded, it will be regarded for many years, probably for generations as a pariah, as an untrustworthy country. Um, so the Russian energy exports will be distrusted even when they resume, even when the political world has changed, when Putin is no longer in charge. Um, and we're going to be pushed swifter into getting off certain hydrocarbon fuels. The use of solar and wind will be accelerated. Uh, probably there will be some destabilization of our grids from relying more on renewables. In Europe, there'll be a huge push beyond what we've seen to this point in time, which has not been without quite a lot of energy um, into hydrogen. Uh, the future is going to arrive faster. That's the simple solution, I think. What, a couple of days ago, the European Union released a draft, an outline of their new energy plan, which, as you mentioned, called for much more renewables and electrification of various parts of the economy, like heat pumps in people's homes. What uh, do you think about the chances for success of that plan, particularly since they want to displace Russian energy well before 2030, in, the, uh, in their own words? I think it'll be slower than they think. It's, we, we changed everything from the 70s to today here in North America, but it wasn't done overnight. Uh, improved drilling, horizontal drilling, fracking, better economic regime, more incentive, uh, and, and new technologies like 3D seismic to find the uh, reserves, but it takes time and it's going to take time before we build any new nuclear reactors. But looking down the road, I think we'll see a world of nuclear and what are now called renewables. Uh, I'm not sure they'll be perfect. I think hydrogen has all sorts of technological problems that will be resolved, but it will take time. It'll take 20 or 30 years to get uh, a real safety uh, uh, situation that is energy safe in Europe. And they're going to suffer in the interim. And they probably at the first opportunity will start buying Russian uh, hydrocarbons again. And there will be a certain amount of cheating. In the interim, there'll be a lot more liquefied natural gas. We'll probably build some more export terminals in the US, maybe in Canada. Uh, at the moment, the demand for natural gas worldwide is huge from Brazil to Peking, to China, to Europe, where it's critical. Um, but you can only go as fast as you have tankers and terminals. So it's not a quick turnaround. It's not a quick uh, uh, thing that can be introduced instantly. We found in the 70s that the fixes are there, but that they take time. They are not overnight. And all the wishing does not bring them on overnight. The technology has to be perfected. 
the politics have to be aligned and the financing has to be available. My take on that, Llewellyn, is that the uh, clean energy technologies, particularly around wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and so on, a lot of that is actually commercially uh, competitive now. It's ready for scaling. And I mean, I, I don't know that the Europeans will be able to scale it as quickly as they hope. But I think the potential is there. And I'll be very curious, I'm watching this story unfold as to how successful they are, because I suspect that what we'll see is how the constraining factors won't be the technology. There'll be things like leadership, policy, uh, and, and regulatory regimes, uh, availability of capital, uh, the consumer's willingness to make sacrifices and to move quickly. And uh, those are in, in tan some of the intangibles that we can't predict at this point. I agree with that totally. And some, as in the 70s and 80s, there will be many uh, uh, wrong roads will go down. Look at some of the technologies that were going to save us, magnetohydrodynamics, ocean thermal gradients, um, salt pond storage, um, um, all sorts of things. And there was, I love the craziest man I ever met came to see me because he had a solution to the global energy problem. It was to detonate hydrogen bombs under the North Atlantic sequentially and capture the energy in an enormous under, under the undersea umbrella, steel umbrella. Um, clearly that was not going to win. Uh, but at that time, solar did not seem very viable because the early stages of solar, it was all power tower. It was using mirrors to concentrate uh, solar on, on, a, on a boiler, basically. It was not making direct electricity. And when we came to upgrade windmills, we started by looking at, at the windmills in Holland, multi-blade traditional windmills that look so nice in paintings. Um, it took a long time before we didn't know if we should have the egg beater type, uh, a design where they were practically square. But to come to the days when turbine took quite a lot of uh, failure, and uh, as all development takes failure, you don't go from Kitty Hawk to a, a 777 or a whatever it is, A380, without making a lot of mistakes along the way and losing a few aeroplanes. It's no different in any other field of endeavor, and energy is one such. The impediment, I think, to getting the swifter uh, adoption of geothermal solar in homes, et cetera, is money. To, to rewire a house or to replumb it uh, is a major undertaking, and most people don't have the money or they don't own the house, and the landlord doesn't wish to do it. The, benef the benefits are spread out over decades. The cost is instant. And we haven't solved that. If we solve that, we'd see more rooftop solar. But utilities are not looking to rooftop solar. They're looking to utility scale solar. And uh, they're doing it very fast. Well, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, fascinating insights into your journalism career as well as the current energy crisis, uh, partly caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course. Thank you very much for this. It's my great pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much, Mark.